Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 269 with Ben Hardy. I think you'll love this chat with Ben because he has come up with some resonant insights. And you might expect that from the number one most read writer on medium.com. Impressive stuff. And he's talking specifically about these insights that come to shaping your environment and dealing with the willpower issue to make your dreams and plans come to life. So you'll learn one how to use the sunk cost fallacy to your advantage, two, the definition of a forcing function and how to apply those at work, and three, why pen and paper can indeed beat a digital form of journaling. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F269. Now here's Ben's story. Since late 2015, Benjamin Hardy has been the number one writer on medium.com. His writing focuses on self-improvement, motivation, and entrepreneurship. His writing is fueled by personal experiences, self-directed education, and formal education. He's currently pursuing a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology at Clemson University. And his research focus is upon the psychological differences between wannabe entrepreneurs and the actual entrepreneurs or dreamers versus doers, if you will. So thanks to Ben for taking some time to chat with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Here is Ben. Ben, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you, Pete. Very glad to be with you, man. Well, so you've got a pretty cool claim to fame and it's that you are the number one writer on Medium. I guess we measure that in in page views by the, the tens of millions. So... Congrats. That's really cool. Thank you. <laughs> How does that happen? I mean, a lot of luck, a lot of good timing and uh, a lot of things. I mean, I started writing online in 2015, shortly after becoming a foster parent of three kids, was in a PhD program, still in that program. Actually, I'm almost done. It's organizational psychology. So we have lots to talk about because it's psychology of the workforce, how to keep people motivated and whatnot. <laughs> so, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, after I became a foster parent, it kind of really put a lot of external pressure on me. I'd been wanting to be a writer since 2010, had spent those, you know, from 2010 to 2015, reading, 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 reading. And I've always been an intense journaler. But it was when I became a foster parent, actually, that that pressure kind of really forced me to like, think about, think things through. And then uh, that led me to investing some money into a domain name, an online course that taught me how to write viral articles, and then seeking mentorships. And then just pumping out lots of articles in my spare time and uh, getting lucky, you know, and just, I mean, I could tell you as much as, as you want to hear, you know, as far as, in my opinion, what makes good writing. But uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of, it's been, it's been a fun ride. <laughs> well, I, I would be intrigued if maybe there is a key principle or a rule of thumb or mantra that you keep front and center that it contributes, you, you think, to the, the success there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, as far as the marketing, you have to get really, really good at writing headlines and structuring articles in a way that is very easy flowing for people to read. As far as writing, the three components are being a very good, you know, you got to be a good communicator, being able to 
weave concepts, principles, uh, stories also. I mean, so you have to communicate, but not just communicate head knowledge. You have to have the head knowledge, which is, you know, expertise or something on a topic. Because if you don't have that, then you just sound like you're sharing your opinion and it's not credible. But if you just have the head knowledge, if you're just writing facts, then it's not compelling and it's not persuasive. And so I think kind of the triple threat is knowing your stuff so well, but actually knowing when it, you know, and then understanding it at kind of the heart level or the emotional level and being able to speak from experience in a communicative way, in a persuasive way. So kind of emotions, expertise, and good communication is what I think really makes it powerful. Because when you can speak really persuasively, but then you're backing your stuff up with like, you know, tons of science or compelling or very credible sources, then not only is it emotional for people, but they're like, oh, wow, like this, this is they believe it's true because you're backing it up over and over and over. <laughs> and so, you know, that's kind of some keys, I think. Oh, cool. Thank you. Well, so I appreciated that. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't just like, well, the key is to put a number in your headline. <laughs> and then it's like the eight reasons willpower doesn't work. You won't believe number six. That's all there is to it. You know, I, <laughs> that's I, all you need, my man. That's it. <laughs> now you can go be famous. <laughs> I had a hunch, like each of those things sounds hard <laughs> in the sense of that'll take some time to, to develop that capability. Oh, it's like yeah. real life. <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not a overnight thing. You know what I mean? I mean, the sea can apply some strategies overnight that make a big difference, but it's not, you know, at the end of the day, you got to, you got to be good at what you do. Like Cal Newport says, you got to be so good. You can't be ignored. Well, so I'm excited to, to see that you have put some of these skills to work in crafting your book here. Willpower doesn't work. Tell us what's, what's this all about? Yeah. Willpower doesn't work is kind of a, I mean, I, I don't know if I'd call it a manifesto, but it's like a countercultural punch in the face to Western culture. So Western culture, especially in the self-improvement world, but also like in the pop psychology world is very individualistic. Uh, that's just our culture. We're very individualistic society. We're very focused on ourselves. And so when we're talking about self-improvement and stuff like that, we're always focused on the self, you know, have more willpower, have, uh, you know, a better mindset, how to set better goals. I mean, it's all about you and there's no focus on the context around you. You know, it's not, there's no focus on the environment or very little, because in our culture, we kind of downplay how much the environment truly shapes us. So what the book is all about is it's all about, first off, how important our environment really is. But the fact that you're a different person in one situation than you are in a different situation, how, you know, and how environment shapes your identity. And then really, you know, ultimately how to shape the optimal environment so that you can succeed. And uh, there's a core quote that comes from Marshall Goldsmith. He wrote the book Triggers. And uh, the quote is, if you do not create and control your environment, your environment will create and control you. And so, I mean, obviously I go into a lot of science and research since I study organizational psychology, but there's been a big shift over the last like 50 years in the research. So, you know, back in like, well, really it's, it's been a, a long time coming, but in the 19, like 20s and 30s, all of the research on leadership, for example, was focused on, on men. Like, so the first core leadership theories were the great men leaders, you know, great man theory of leadership. I mean, it was like, it was all about how leaders could only be men. 
And then there, then we went to the trait perspective where it's like, you know, you could only be a six foot tall man. And, and ultimately we were all focused on traits and stuff and even personality types. I mean, it's so popular, you know, it's, we're also focused on, on these fixed traits. And in my opinion, the science at this point is pretty clear that, you know, it's all about the environment and about creating that environment. That's why companies like Zappos are so popular, but I mean, all the research in organizational psychology is focused on focused now on how do you structure environmental settings so that employees can be successful and so that so that leadership can happen so really this book's just all about how do you set up the environment so that you can win intriguing well so so maybe we should back it up a little bit when we talk about winning i guess that really starts with a decision to commit to a particular you know goal result outcome to to begin with so you know what's your take on on where it all starts and how you arrive at a point of conviction that this is the thing that I shall pursue. I love that. So it actually directly relates to my research. And so throughout my doctoral research, you know, and I know that we're not going to be talking about entrepreneurship specifically on this video or on this episode, but I I actually do study the difference between uh, wannabe entrepreneurs versus actual entrepreneurs, but it relates to everything. It relates, really, it's the difference between dreamers and doers. You know, what is the difference between those people who can never reach that point of conviction versus those people who become fully committed? And ultimately, kind of what I've concluded after studying all sorts of people on this topic is that, yes, you have to have some internal desire, but that's too focused to get on the individual. You have to ultimately do something in the real world. And um, so there's there's a few components, but I think the main one is, is that once a person starts financially investing in themselves, in their skill development, in their relationships, once they actually start investing money in what they want to do, then all of a sudden they become hyper committed. Like there's a lot of research in economics stuff called escalation of commitment, where like once you commit or once you start investing money, dollars into something, you become very committed to it, almost so committed that it becomes hard not to commit. It kind of goes along with the idea of sunk cost bias, where like you become so have you heard of sunk cost bias before? Right. Certainly. It's like you try to justify what 100%. you have. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And almost all the research on sunk cost bias points it in the negative direction that like, you know, it becomes an irrational commitment, but it's the same level of commitment that leads to success. The only reason people think it's irrational is because often it ends in failure. You know, like if you think Elon Musk, you know, he was so convicted in his companies that he sunk all of his money into it. And because he succeeded, we all think he's a hero. If he had failed, we would have called him irrational. But it's the same principle applies, you know, you, if you start investing money, you become very committed, whether that's to an organization, whether that's to a goal, whether that's to a relationship, whether that's to your skills. Once you become invested, you become committed. And as you get committed, then you start to, you know, wrap your identity around that thing. You start to change your identity and believe that you are that thing, whether that's entrepreneur or leader or writer, you know, and you start to go from wanting to be that thing to actually being that thing. Yeah, that's intriguing and and powerful. And, you know, this is, this is bringing me back to, you know, Robert Cialdini talking about commitment consistency in his book, Influence, and those sorts of principles. Now, when it it comes to money, is it important that it be a a sizable sum of money or or do you really get get the ball rolling? If you spend 12 bucks on a, on an Amazon book, in the direction that you're, you're pursuing, like, like things are, are happening already. I a hundred percent think it can definitely start small. I mean, I have been coming to grips with this principle. And by the way, I love Cialdini. I've spent so much time studying his work and commitment and stuff, but, um, yeah, I mean, it, it always starts small. 
like when I was first starting my PhD program, you know, and I was like really starting to say, I want to start this whole writing thing. As a PhD student, you're, you know, you're making 12,000 bucks a year. You're getting about a thousand bucks a month, plus you get your tuition paid for. And so for me, it was like, okay, I need to buy a website, you know, and that domain name cost 800 bucks. That's more than $12. But, you know, I bought an online course for 197 that taught me how to write viral articles or viral headlines. And so I do think it can start small, it can start with books, it can start with really what needs to happen is, is that you see yourself moving in the direction you want to go. Like if you watch yourself buying and reading books on a topic, you're like, oh, I'm observing myself performing these behaviors. Like that's how people b- develop their identity. It's called self-signaling in psychology. Basically what it means is that we ourselves, we don't really know ourselves as much as we think we do. We judge ourselves the same way we judge other people. It's based on our behaviors. And so if you start watching yourself behave in certain ways, you'll start to believe it. And that's how confidence develops. You know, confidence is the product of successful behavior. And so once you start behaving in a certain way and you start kind of developing some consistency, all of a sudden you start to have confidence and then you can become passionate about it. Okay, that's cool. I like that. And so then when it comes to the environment, I dug your quote from Marshall Goldsmith. It also reminds me of one by, uh, by Churchill who said, we shape our dwellings and then our dwellings shape us. So Marshall, by the way, Marshall McLuhan also said we shape our language and then our language shapes us. Okay. We got a full blown theme here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, the whole book is about how your environment shapes you and that the only way to proactively become the person you want to be is to shape the environment that you know will shape you. <laughs> All right. Well, that's compelling. So let, let's hear it. You know, how do we go about taking those steps to, to shaping such an environment? I mean, first things first, you have to somewhat, I mean, you kind of have to know what you want. You don't need to know all of it because a lot of the change happens once you're in the environment. But I think, you know, there's so many layers to this question. I think for the starters, I'll talk about in the book, I, I talk about two types of optimal environments. So I call them enriched environments. And that comes from a lot of uh, theory and organizational psychology about basically how people have been structuring jobs. They call it job enrichment, which is basically all the stuff that Dan Pink talked about in his book, Drive, I believe, um, about creating jobs where people have more autonomy and stuff. I mean, that's all based on research and organizational psychology. But basically, the two types of optimal environments that I talk about in the book are environments of high stress and then environments of complete rest. And Basically, it's the idea that you need to be fully engaged and absorbed in whatever environment you're in. So in order to be fully absorbed and in, let's just say, like a flow state where you're totally engaged in what you're doing, you're totally focused, there's got to be several factors. You've got to have high level of responsibility. There's got to be consequences for performance. Well, ideally, you should be doing something that you've never done before and that's somewhat above your skill level. I mean, it needs to be challenging and difficult and there needs to be feedback. You know, I mean, that's it's, it's basically like the equivalent of being at the gym with a personal trainer. It should be very difficult and you should be having to rise to an occasion, rise above what you've done before. So much so that and, and, and very few people's work environments are like that. Most people are in a semi state of distraction. You know, there's tabs open on their you know stuff. There's notifications popping on their phone. There's very low consequence for bad performance. There's rare, you know, it's mundane, it's routine. And so step one is how do you create an optimal environment that's high stress? And then step two is you can't do that all day. You can't do that. You know, it's not about being busy. It's about being productive. And so you need to have an environment for rest and recovery where you fully detach from work and where you then just like 
focus on whatever it is you want to do at home, whether that's be with your family or whether that's like rest and recover in some other way. Um, there's a lot of research in organizational psychology that talks about a concept called psychologically detaching from work. And basically it means that in order to fully be engaged while you're at work, you need to fully detach and like be engaged in life and rest and like let it go. And there's like all sorts of negative effects if you don't ever detach from work. Like you, you have a hard time, you know, fully engaging, you burn out quicker. And so I think kind of just bringing this together real quick, there's a quote from Dan Sullivan. He's, he's the founder of strategic coach, but he says, wherever you are, that's where you should be. (laughs) Wherever you are, make sure you're there. And so, you know, the idea is, is when you're fully resting, like actually rest and recover, almost all of your best ideas are going to happen while you're resting. And then while you're at work, you can fully engage at a much higher level. You can be much more proactive. You can take on more responsibility. And so I think that, you know, first off, understanding those two types of environments and kind of assessing yourself, how often are you in those types of environments? Like when you're actually home, are you actually resting or is your environment set up for failure? Like, do you have a TV in your bedroom or, you know what I mean? Like, you know, is your environment set up to fail? And so, I mean, I think first off assessing how often are you in a flow state and, and knowing that flow is purely the base based on your environment is number one. I don't know if you want to just talk about that first, and then we can talk more about how to actually structure those things. Sure thing. So I would like to hear about how one constructs both a, a high stress and a high recovery environment. And, and so it sounds like when you, the antithesis to high stress was, hey, you know, we got a lot of it distractions. We've got not a whole lot of really high stakes in terms of, you know, if you succeed or fail on a given day, it's like, well, (laughs) you know, you're probably not going to be fired or promoted or get a fat bonus or, you know, whatever kind of on most days. So how do we go about putting an environment in place in which we we do have the stress so that we can be totally in and, and rocking and then afterwards, let's, let's talk about the recovery side. Totally. Absolutely. So there's a concept I talk about in the book called forcing functions. And forcing functions are basically a simple way to kind of manipulate your environment so that basically desired behavior is the norm. It's the automatic. I mean, a simple forcing function literally is just leave your phone away from your person. Like if, if, if you're not required to use it, like while you're at work, for example, like don't have it around you, leave it in a bag or something like basically just put constraints in place so that you're not going to do something stupid. That's basically what a forcing function is. Other forcing functions, you know, and this is more relevant to just like self-improvement, but I think it could be related to the job site. Like Ramit Sethi, for example, he invests and he's like an online entrepreneur, but he invests like a good amount of money every year into a personal trainer. And when he does that, it kind of, and it's almost the same principle we were talking about before it forces him to go to the gym. You know what I mean? And so let's just say a person has a goal, you know, whatever it may be, get a promotion or get a better job. A lot of it's thinking about what you want and then embedding these forcing functions to make it happen. I mean, a very simple, interesting forcing function, you know, just for high productivity is, so one of the people I talked to, he purposefully, you know, if he's going to go work for a few hours, like let's just say the library or something, he purposefully leaves his power cord at home for his laptop because he knows that now his laptop only has three hours of battery. For him, it 
forces him to be more focused because he knows that his battery is going to die in three hours and then when it's dead, it's dead and he's got to go home. I mean, those are really simple, low-level things. Well, I, I'd love some more. So we talk about, hey, leaving the phone, leaving the laptop charger, you know, paying some money up front for a personal trainer. I'd love, if you got it, a smorgasbord to, uh, to spark some inspiration. So is this all straight up in the context of being at work? Well, you know, I think it's okay if we, we drift a bit in terms of, of things that boost your, your general productivity and effectiveness and energy. But yeah, if you got some, some office-specific tidbits, uh, those are great to prioritize. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. For me, I mean, in what I've seen, a lot of it has to do with, you know, and if you're at a job, for example, like how can you take on more responsibility? A very simple forcing function is literally just applying Parkinson's law, which is tell your advisor or whoever it is that you need to like report to that you're going to have something done very soon. Like if you tell them vocally that you're going to have their report back or whatever it is that you have to give them, if you give them a very short timeline on when you're going to have it back, you know, and, and you've made it verbal so that now they're expecting it, all of a sudden, like, you're going to get to work. Parkinson's law basically is work fills the space of the amount of time you give it, you know, and then asking for more responsibility, like seeking greater responsibility, actually trying to, I mean, a lot of these are very simple and basic, That's fine. but yeah, I mean, you just want to, you, and let's just like say it how it is. If your job is not set up so that those things are in place, I'm not saying go quit, I'm saying how you, you might have to have some conversations so that you can be in a position where, where it does matter, you know, and you, that may require that you seek, seek more mentoring or something. I mean, a lot of it's just taking responsibility for your job and for your situation. <laughs> if you need to have a conversation with your boss and say you want more work or you just need to show up more. I mean, a lot of that's just being proactive. I mean, that, that stuff's not necessarily about tweaking the environment, but it's more about tweaking the expectations around the environment. And uh, there's a lot of research that talks about how you rise or fall based on the expectations of those around you. You know, that's called the Pygmalion effect. And so, you know, if you have leaders that don't expect much of you, sadly, you're probably going to drop to those expectations. Okay, let's put stuff. So now let's talk about the, the flip side of it then when it comes to building out the the high recovery environment or any, you know, wise forcing functions to be implemented there. Totally. So to the extent you can, and I think Greg McEwen, who I know has been on this show, one of the things he talks about is literally just asking for specific things with your job. I mean, if you can ask for certain days off or certain typing types of schedules, I mean, asking, asking if you can work from home, but if you can't asking for certain amounts of time off, you know, so basically the idea is this, the best creative insights are not going to happen while you're at work. The research says that only 16% of creative ideas happen when you're sitting at your desk. And so you need to be very focused when you're at work, but you also want to optimize for rest and recovery. You want to optimize for being away. And so, you know, there's a lot of research and a lot of cool ideas around sabbaticals, around mini retirements. If you think about Bill Gates, he did his think weeks where two weeks a year he would leave. He would totally detach. He was very inaccessible and he would just spend time reading articles thinking and he said that's where his best ideas came from. And, you know, you can apply that at a really small scale. I mean, a lot of people talk about having a disconnected day where you leave, where you go away for a day and you just rest. You don't have your phone with you. You're unreachable. And like you just go and have a you day where you're just resting, where you're maybe listening to an audiobook or writing in your journal or going on a hike. Like the more of those type of days you can embed into your life, 
or weekends, you know, or like mini retirements where you're doing like maybe like a five day weekend, like once every month or two. The power of leaving your routine environment is very important because when you're outside your routine environment, when you allow yourself to actually rest and recover, then you start to get some really good clarity. And there's strategies around getting that clarity and connecting with your why. Like I would talk about writing in your journal in specific ways. And I talk about that in the book. So there's a lot of kind of research around the idea that the power of a decision is based on the emotional state that you make that decision. And so like a lot of people, they don't make powerful decisions because they're not in a very powerful mental place when they make that decision. When you get out of your routine environment, when you can kind of see the, the forest of your life or the trees because you're kind of outside of it, you're not like staring it in the face, you can kind of take a breath, you can look at life, you can kind of reconnect with who it is you want to be or with your core values or whatnot. The more of those days you can take, especially if you're spending time in self-improvement, like reading audiobooks along the way or writing in your journal and thinking about your goals, it's making powerful decisions in those states that allows you then to come back into your environment, into your life, at your job, wherever you are, and live at a much higher level. And I think everyone who's listening to this podcast, you know, regardless of where they are in their career, they, they're probably listening to this podcast because they want to upgrade themselves and they want to continue to upgrade their career. And, uh, and so I think spending plenty of time resting and recovering first off so that you can psychologically detach so that you can come back and be in flow while you're at work so that you can be super productive while you're there, but also giving yourself plenty of time to totally just detach and reset and reconnect with yourself and then make powerful decisions outside of your environment about who you want to be, what you want to do, and then jumping back into life and actually living that out. That's how you upgrade yourself. I mean, that's how you become successful regardless of your career path or your job. I mean, you can become successful in any field if you give yourself plenty of time to self-improve. You know, I mean, Stephen Covey calls that sharpening your saw. And so when you talk about a powerful state for a powerful decision, so it sounds like you're sort of contrasting that as opposed to a state in which you have very narrow, shallow, distracted attention and feel constrained to not have a lot of time, energy, focus, attention to having, you know, that time, that rejuvenated space to rock and roll. So, so that's, sounds like what you mean by powerful state, because, well, I got Tony Robbins in my head right now. I was like, make your move. Yes. You know, powerful state, peak state, jump up and down. So are you talking about a powerful state in the sense of, I am so freaking excited or as well as, Hey, I've got sort of time and, and, and resources to apply to thought. Uh, I would say it's slightly a blend of both. Okay. So like there's a, there's a really good book called the power of moments that recently came out by Chip and Dan Heath. And, um, they talk about powerful moments, whether they're peaks or like pits, pits are like hard moments, you know, where you're facing hard truths or just transition moments. You know, those are the things that generally are most memorable. Like when you think back on your life, you're generally thinking about highs, lows, or transitions. Those are kind of the things that are most potent in our memory. Like the Tony Robbins stuff, how do you get yourself into an elevated state so that you can make bigger decisions? I mean, that's there's some good stuff in there, but a lot of it's mostly just getting clarity, you know, getting clear on, on what you want, reconnecting with what you want. And so I would say it's kind of a blend of both. All right. So I, I would like to talk a little bit about this, this clarity and this journaling stuff here. So, you know, we talked about giving it the, the time and energy and attention and space required to touch base with, with what's really important and what matters. But it sounds like you've also got some particular 
prompts or questions that you suggest pursuing in order to really zero in on that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, giving yourself the space to do it is important. For me, when I'm journaling, you know, and read plenty of books on this as well. I mean, a really, really good one I would recommend is called Write It Down, Make It Happen, written by some English professor of some sort. She was great. But um, basically, journal writing has been found to be helpful for a lot of reasons, one of them being emotional regulation. So a lot of people have a lot of suppressed emotions of some sort, you know, suppressed trauma. One of the best books on the topic that's starting to get a lot of steam is called The Body Keeps the Score. It's written by an amazing medical doctor. But basically, a lot of the reason people are stuck is because, you know, they have suppressed energy or emotions that they just don't want to let come back up. And one of the main tools for writing in the journal is just to emotionally regulate, you know, writing about what you're dealing with, getting kind of understanding your emotions. There's a lot of really cool research talking about, well, so another one of the kind of myths that I try to slam in this book is the idea that you don't necessarily have what I would call a fixed personality. Like in Western culture, because we're so individualistic, we think that the personality you're born with is the personality you you are for the rest of your life. And that's why we're so focused on personality tests and stuff like that. From kind of combining a lot of the stuff in the medical field about trauma, what usually happens when a person goes through a traumatic experience or even just stress is that they start to, basically it's what they would, you know, your personality becomes frozen. You stop living in the present, you stop integrating new experiences and you kind of get stuck or you stop creating these peak or, you know, these peaks, pits or transitions, these challenging moments that gets you. And so kind of going back to journaling, one of the, the reasons, so you want to write in it to break through some of those emotions, but you also want to write in it to purposefully create some of these life altering experiences. You know, they don't have to be these high, high peaks, like the Tony Robbins style, although that's what they call him is peaks. You know, Tony didn't make up that word. (laughs) Like he just uses it in his own ways, but peak experiences, you know, comes from Abraham Maslow. But ultimately I think you want to create those. And so in my journal, not only am I writing about, you know, the emotions and stuff that I'm dealing with, but also you want to think about what are the experiences you want to create that would allow you to continually upgrade as a person. So you want to strategize in your journal. Not only write about the stuff that, that's difficult, but you want to write about the things you want to actually do. And then you, you know, while you're writing, because what's cool about writing pen and paper is that it allows you to focus on the topic, but it also allows your mind to wander at the same time. And when your mind is wandering, it's able to make connections to distant places in your memory or in your brain or just based on where you're located in the environment. And so while you're writing you actually end up getting a lot of ahas and insights, or at least you come up with ideas that are things that you can then attempt to do, whether that's, you know, you may get the idea to call your advisor, you know, or your boss and make a recommendation or send that email or an idea to maybe be more productive or proactive at work, maybe get an idea of how you can help a colleague. I mean, it's basically giving yourself the space to think and then maybe you know, developing the confidence to actually try stuff you haven't been trying so that you can actually do stuff to get different results. And so that's intriguing when you mention the the pen to paper situation is helpful because you focus in on the thing and yet also wander. So you're saying you don't get the same effect in a digital writing environment. Nope, not at all. No, writing with a pen and paper is so slow and kind of tedious that it allows you to wander in random places. That's why journal writing is inherently random. You know, I mean, it it often for most people, it goes from 
topic to topic is because not only are you slightly focused on a topic, but your mind is also like roaming around, you know, and so it picks things up that you couldn't pick up if you were. So it's a little, I think it's a better tool for creativity on a brain level for most people than just writing in an app. Awesome. Well, thank you. That's, that's a great distinction to, to tuck in here. Well, Ben, it sounds like we could cover a whole lot of, of goodies here. Uh, you tell me, is there anything else you really want to make sure to highlight before we shift gears and hear about a few of your favorite things? Huh? No, no, we can just shift gears. All right, sure. Well, can you share with us a, a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Sure. I mean, I think I'll just probably repeat the one I did before just so it's emphasized. If you do not create and control your environment, your environment will create and control you. I guess another one that goes with that is just willpower is for people who haven't decided what they want to do. <laughs> mm. Okay, thank you. And, and how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? I really like Ellen Langer's work, honestly. She's my favorite psychologist. She's a Harvard psychologist. She wrote two really good books and has spent several decades studying her research is really non-conventional, but her two books are called Mindfulness, and she's kind of the godmother or the queen of mindfulness, which her stuff is so different than the pop stuff that you see online these days. But she wrote a book called Mindfulness, and she wrote a book called Counterclockwise. And um, her counterclockwise study is so interesting. Basically, what she did was she took... Do you know the counterclockwise study? I really don't. Let's hear it. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. So she took like a bunch of men in their 70s. And this actually, this study oh, actually... Oh, okay, go on. Yeah, you know it. You know it. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, this this study actually happened in their set in the seventies in the nineteen seventies. So she took a bunch of you know like I think like eight men in their seventies and took them to a place that they had designed to look like the nineteen fifties. And so it looked like they had old pictures, old magazines. And basically, what she did was she had the men get dropped off by their families, and then they spent the time reminiscing as if it was the nineteen fifties. And so they couldn't talk about anything after the year 1958. And I think that this study actually happened in 1978. So it was like 20 years earlier. And so they had to pretend like they were the, you know, the 50, 50 year old version of themselves. And they had to pretend like that that's who they were. And um, they had to talk about current events of the time as if it was real. You know, they had to talk about, you know, their job as if that was who they were. And they spent five days doing this. And then when the five days was up, and what's interesting is, is a lot of the people who came when they were in their, you know, when they were getting dropped off by their kids, they were coming in on canes and stuff. They had to, you know, they could barely, so they came in, some of them couldn't even really walk. And um, what Ellen Langer and her team of graduate students did is they treated them as if, you know, it kind of goes with this whole idea of act as if, but it's very different. They treated them like human beings and gave them the context to act differently than they've been expected to act. Because... There's so much, so much interesting research about how, you know, I already talked about the Pygmalion effect, about how people respond psychologically based on the expectations of the environment, but, the, but their biological metrics also kind of are altered by the expectations of the environment. That's a new and emerging field called epigenetics. But basically what happened with this study was after like five or seven days, it was time for the study to be over. And these men scored totally different on their dexterity. Uh, their vision was better, you know, their memory was better. Some of them who had walked in on canes, like walked out on their own two feet. Like it's a very compelling study and it's called the counterclockwise study, Ellen Linger. Basically, 
that kind of opened the door for a lot of her research and studying how uh, context and environment and uh, and expectations and all of these things relate to identity. And so one of the big ahas, you know, that I would hope that anyone that hears these ideas takes is that who you are in one situation is not who you are in a different situation. That is kind of a Western perspective, and it's a very fixed and rigid mindset, and it totally ignores the power of context. So who you are in one situation is different from who you are in a different situation. Your, your personality is not fixed, but it's fluid, and it's also based on environment. And your identity is not singular, but it's based on your situation. And so, you know, once you kind of get those things, then kind of your level of responsibility becomes shape the environment that shapes you, or as Churchill would say, you know, shape the building or whatever, shape your home that shapes you. That That's kind of, I think, ultimately where the responsibility comes when you start to understand these things. And my prediction, because now that the fields of epigenetics and stuff and neuroscience are becoming so popular and they're realizing the power of environment, my prediction is that you're going to see a big shift in a lot of the self-improvement writing. And it's going to start to focus a lot more on environment because the science that's been around in, in psychology for like three decades is starting to become very compellingly clear in other fields now. Oh, intriguing. Thank you. And so you've listed a few, but could you also share with us a favorite book? I think I'll just stick with the recommendation I gave about The Body Keeps the Score. That's a really good one right now for me. All right. And do you have a favorite tool, something that helps you be awesome at your job? Yeah, two. (laughs) Audible and my journal. (laughs) Listen to a ton of books and listen to them with my journal open and take tons of notes in the morning during my morning routine so that every day my mind gets better and uh, I sharpen my skills so that every day I live better. So, I mean audiobooks for me and just writing pen and pad in a journal. That's those things have helped me tons. Okay, cool. And and how about is there a particular nugget or piece that you share that really seems to connect and resonate and, and get folks sort of quoting you you back to you? Yep, definitely. It brings all these ideas together. So number one, it's not your personality that shapes your behavior. It's your behavior that shapes your personality and not the behavior that leads you to certain environments. But so that's one key is you know your behavior your identity. Number two is it's not confidence that leads to success. It's successful behavior that creates confidence. I mean, I think that those two are, are nuggets that if people can internalize, they can, they can actually make some big changes in their lives. And Ben, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I would point them to my book, Willpower Doesn't Work. They can read all my articles on medium.com. They can check out benjaminhardy.com. But uh, yeah, my, my big ask or my big challenge would be go check out the book, Willpower Doesn't Work. All right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Try as hard as you can to create these two types of optimal environments in your life or what I would call enriched environments. And I think that it's really good to really assess how much time you're spending in these types of environments because your environment is either pushing against you or it's pulling you forward. And if you're, you know, if your environment's not pulling you forward and if it's pushing against you, then you're going to have to use willpower. So I think it's easier actually initially to start with the rest and recovery environments. Like when you're home, be home, like leave the distractions alone and actually do something engaging at home and like disconnect from work. And then with those insights and rest that you'll get, like actually make your job high level, make it high demand, take on more responsibility, create consequences through publicly saying when you'll have stuff done, take on more responsibility. I would say just create more enriched environments in your life through forcing functions like we've talked about or just through making your life more engaging. Those types of environments are very rare in today's society. Most people are very distracted. Very few people are fully on or fully off. And uh, if you can create those environments that allow you to, to do that, it'll 
it'll change your life. All right, cool. Well, well, Ben, this has been so fun. I hope that book is a smashing success and uh, I wish you lots of luck in in your writing and, and all you're doing here. Thank you, Pete. Seriously, thanks for being so accommodating and for taking the time means a lot. I love what Ben had to say about forcing functions and making those decisions when you're in a strong place. So here is a forcing function for myself. I shall commit to ye thousands that before April is concluded, April 2018, I will have launched it out and available to you. The course I've been thinking about, dreaming about, doing a little bit here, a little bit there for a long, long time that solves one of the most challenging career questions that we all have to face more and more often these days, it seems. How cryptic, how intriguing. Yes, so that shall be available before the end of April. And if you're getting a tax refund, you might want to earmark a portion for something super cool. Like Ben mentioned, would you spend money you invested on yourself for a particular thing that helps reshape identity and commitment and such. So of course, no pressure, you know, spend your money where it is optimal, but I think this is going to be a hit for many of you based on many conversations and emails. So more to come on that. Make sure you're on the email list, whether that's the gold nuggets or the 10 days of winning at work. So you don't miss the memo when it comes forth on that uh, super cool, exciting course I'm working on. I've got coders coding, designers designing, and outlines blossoming, and slides taking shape. So it's pretty exciting stuff. So more to come there. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll hear from our next guest. It is Scott Mouts. He is talking about inspiration and the opposite of inspiration, how it comes, how it goes at work, and what can be done to keep that fire burning fresh. Hope you catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.